Hola. Welcome to the Danger Room, the X-Men Comics Commentary Podcast. My name's Adam. And my name is Jeremy. And we're here to discuss the Uncanny X-Men number 129, which would be the January 1980 issue published October 16th of 1979. And uh, this one's called God Spare the Child. I may not always love you long as there are stars above you. You never need daddy. Save us from the Knights of Hellfire. Well, I don't really qualify that as a title. No. As much as a in looking what what happens inside blurb. Well, it's the thing that it says on the cover, anyways. That's true. And the cover there. And the might I might do it anyway, just to be a dick. (laughs) That's so like you, Adam. (laughs) I wish you were less like that. The cover features Colossus throwing what is presumably a Knight of Hellfire and Wolverine slashing at one and Storm blasting another with a bolt of lightning. They're in front of an ice cream stand. Are they? It almost looks like... Oh, no, they're in an ice cream stand. You got shake sundaes, a soda, a banana split, and there's an exit sign over to the left of the, the cover. Behind Wolverine, there's some of those ice cream, uh, like... Things that shoot out the little ice cream. Is that what it is, or is it like a soda jerk handle? Oh, I suppose it could be a soda jerk handle. Yeah, who knows? It is the 70s after all, almost the 80s. That's true. We're so, very close. So this is God Spare the Child, dot, 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 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Terry Austin is inking. Tom Orzachowski is lettering. Bob Sharon is coloring. What, no more Glennis Ween? I guess not. Roger Stern is editing, and Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief. Do we actually know when the Weens split up? Because maybe this is in the midst of their divorce. I didn't even know they split up. Well, I don't know. She goes from Glennis Ween to Glennis Oliver, so I only assumed. Did she? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hello. Unless Which, I don't know. Unless, like, she's his brother, and then she got married to somebody named Oliver. And I've been thinking about this relationship all wrong. She's definitely not his brother. Well, uh, her sister. (laughs) Then again, maybe she is. What do I know? (laughs) Who knows? So the X-Men are on a rain-slicked landing pad behind Moira McTaggart's Muir Island Mutant Research Center. And I believe it's been a few days since that battle with Proteus. It's the Blackbird again. Didn't it change from being the Blackbird to something else? No, I think it's pretty pretty well consistently been the Blackbird. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wasn't it the X-Jet at some point? I just dropped that in the other day to say that they don't call it the Blackbird. They call it the X-Jet these days. But uh, 
Well, I mean, like in modern times, but I think they stayed pretty consistent with the Blackbird name through the 70s and 80s. Maybe even, in, well, in the 90s, it kind of goes away. Like they don't use it so much, but I don't know. They don't use the plane or they just don't use the name of the plane? They don't use the plane so much in the 90s. Everybody flies. Yeah, but I think there's different storylines that go on that don't involve the poor Blackbird. It's oh. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> Uh, uh, let's see. Phoenix is saying that the, the Blackbird is ready to go, and so it's time for the X-Men to leave. And Banshee's like, I'll be staying here with me love. Essentially. Yep. He's, uh, kind of useless these days, so he's decided to stay behind and not be an X-Man. I don't think Moira gets a line of dialogue in here. She just kind of looks on as Banshee. She's still very sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she looks actually kind of looks sad on the second page as Sean looks very happy. <laughs> uh, but apparently, uh, so he's thinking to himself that she must be broken up, that her husband and son are dead. Um, but she'll be recovering and she can't do it alone. He's a good guy, that banshee. Sure is. Cyclops looks over to Jamie Madrox and says, Well, what about you, Mr. Multiple Man? You want to join the X-Men? And he says no. And then he turns to Alex and Lorna and says, well, Banshee won't do it, and multiple men won't do it. What about you guys? And they're like, no, Scott, as Havoc and Polaris, we may be super-powered mutants, but Alex, and Hav- uh, but Alex Summers and Lorna Dane, we're not X-Men. It's true. But he does toss. They're definitely not X-Men. <laughs> as we've learned in the last few uh, issues. But he does toss out, just in case uh, the X-Men ever need them, they can call and they'll come a-running. So the two brothers embrace. The X-Men get off into the X-Jet and take off. Take care, X-Men, and may ye be a heaven a half hour before the devil knows you're dead. I'm sure that's an ancient Scottish proverb. Sure. <laughs> There's a movie called the Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. I've not seen that movie. I didn't like it. Oh. It was one of those really depressing movies. Oh, well, you shouldn't have watched a depressing movie, Adam. I didn't know it was going to be depressing. It mm. got rave reviews. Mm. But you have to be careful when a movie gets rave reviews, because sometimes it's really depressing. <laughs> well, on the uh, airplane, we get a, the narration box gives us a little roll call of the X-Men, but we already know who they are. The only interesting thing here is that Nightcrawler is actually flying the plane. He's practicing. Yeah. Well, I mean, Cyclops is kind of looking over him like, yeah, good job, buddy. You're doing it. Here we get Colossus uh, being a little bit uh, upset about having killed Proteus, which I believe last issue you were kind of annoyed that he was all smiley at the end. Yeah. So right now, now he's kind of brooding about it. And in the the Colossus we know and love. It's kind of like a theme that like... The end of the arc always ends with everybody all smiley and happy. Yeah, but then the next issue, they're like, what did we do? Wolverine's got a pillow. Yeah, he does. The two girls, Storm and Phoenix, in the back, it really looks like Storm is looking at Phoenix going, Phoenix, do you ever have that not-so-fresh feeling? (laughs) (laughs) They're not saying anything. They're just looking at each other. It's kind of weird. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) they're, They're probably not saying that. I like your imagination. (laughs) (laughs) 
So the Blackbird is going at five times the speed of light, I guess. F- or five times the speed of light. That'd be really Whoa, fast. Whoa, it's going really fast. <laughs> five times the speed of sound. <laughs> and uh, it, it easily overtakes a larger, slower corporate jetliner marked with the stylized logo of New York's legendary Hellfire Club. So did the Blackbird pass the Hellfire Club airplane? I don't think it has yet, but it's about to. Hmm, weird. You think that's planned by the Hellfire Club to be like, let's be at the same trajectory as the X-Men? Well, they're headed back to the same place. So. I guess you're right, because, uh, uh, well, Jason Wingard is the guy who's on the plane with, I don't know, one of the scantily clad Hellfire ladies. And yeah, you're right. He was in Scotland and they would be all heading back to New York. So, yeah, good call. So, Jason Wingard, he's thinking to himself about how his plan is coming together and and uh Jean or he's just opening up her mind to let her have a taste of her innermost forbidden needs and desires mm. and he's going to do it now as their planes are passing one another wow and so he does and he sends Jean Grey on a uh kind of psychedelic trip back into the past where she is uh she is Lady Jean Grey. This would be the same... 200 years ago or something like that. This would be the same era as when they did that horse riding thing. Right. When they were hunting a man and not a beast. It's a mysterious past that he's creating. Uh, there's like some sort of... Uh, she says... Well, she thinks to herself, and this is, this is coming up. I thought these time slips were caused by Proteus's reality warping power. But the alternative is so incredible. Can I actually be psychically shifting in time, reliving the life of one of my ancestors? So she thinks this is from the past. Right. She's trying to work this out in her head. She's been psychically reaching out to try to figure out, like, is this real? And I guess her psychic readings indicate that it is, in fact, real. I don't know which... I guess says that Jason Wingard has got a really powerful power. Yeah, that's, I don't know, I guess hopefully we'll learn more about that. Yeah, I, I hope so, anyways. Um, uh, Jason Wingard is also in this fantasy with Jean Grey, but she she is kind of freaked out, so she leaves him and goes up to the, uh, the, the, the main deck of the ship, the top where all the sailors are and... The poop deck. No, no, no. She's on the deck of the of the. Uh, she's she's port raft, one of the two, and she's thinking she's scared about the time slips. They're happening more and more often. She wonders what will happen to her body in the present when she's interrupted by the captain who has a familiar voice. It's Scott. Yes, great Scott. So she's reshifting back from, I guess, 1779 back to 1979, and the captain slowly turns back into Scott Summers and says that uh, he would like to help her because he sees that something is troubling her. And, and uh, yeah, and that's when she says, I've seen some things in your head. I know that you're dating Colleen Wing. She says that uh, she never tapped his mind, but she couldn't help picking up stray thoughts from the others. Okay. Well, so she was, I wasn't eavesdropping on you, Scott. I was eavesdropping on everybody else. So it's okay. <laughs> but so his explanation essentially is like, well, no, we're, me, me and uh, Colleen are just friends. We know differently. It seems like there were a lot more than that for a while. 
But she sa- he says that uh, uh, he gives this sob story of like when I when you were dead, I made me learn some things about you. It seemed that every time I turn around, I'm losing people like my parents, and then my brother, and a few friends, and uh, the orphanage, and then you. And I couldn't handle it, so I didn't want to feel. So I let my mind shut a part of it off. I felt nothing, and that's when help me a stuffed shirt. <laughs> and that's when I discovered that you're everything to me, as necessary as the air I breathe. I used to say I love you without truly knowing it, uh, knowing what I was talking about. I know now, a little anyway. Gene, I love you. And I use God with all my heart. And they smooch. And according to the next panel, they smooch and smooch and touch and smooch and talk and smooch and touch. I don't know. Scott just seems to have launched back into pathetic Scott with that. Well, he never stopped being pathetic Scott. I mean, when was he not pathetic Scott? Yeah, he seemed to kind of put some airs on when he was hanging out with Colleen. I don't know. He was all like, Colleen, am I square? (laughs) <laughs> I know we've been talking about me, but let's keep talking about me. <laughs> yeah, good point. So, as they get close to the school headquarters, this is how we know Nightcrawler was actually in training for the airplane, is Scott takes the controls to land them, but apparently... Now, look at this. Because of the psychic or the telepathic rapport she's established between them, Jean is the first to realize that something's wrong, and she's referring to Scott. And that's because Scott was reading on the controls of the Blackbird that there was an intruder in the mansion. Psych, what's up? Says Wolverine. I I think this is the, the I think this is the first mention of the telepathic rapport, isn't it? Uh I don't think so. I feel like the professor has established a psychic rapport with the members yeah. of the team you previously. Might, you might be right about that. I don't know. Last time Gene was referring to it as the psychic switchboard or something like that. Well, I think that was a whole other thing, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't have enough uh, information to either corroborate you or deny <laughs> your claim. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Cyclops has picked up an indicator uh, intruder in the house. My guess is it's Beast, because remember, Beast was the one that kind of alerted them to this whole problem in the first place. <laughs> He's just been roaming around the mansion like, guys, guys, you were supposed to wait for me. <laughs> no, it's not. The X-Men come tearing through the front door as they do. But it... can't, we can't tell the readings we, from the readings. We can't tell if it's friend or foe. So we're going to assume it's trouble and all burst in at once because we know that works. <laughs> Let's not split up and come in in multiple different ways so we can assess the situation or just use Phoenix's power to reach out in there and tell us who it is. No. Let's just burst in. <laughs> well, don't worry, because whoever it is, is just has been waiting inside the front door the whole time. Yes, he's just been sitting there. And it's the professor, which is it's very professor-like to just be sitting there waiting for this grand entrance. Well, well I wasn't uh, waiting. I was, uh, yeah, I was just happened to be strolling by. Uh, yeah. I was going from my office to the kitchen for a snack when I heard you at the door, so I decided I would look at the door. Yeah, that's that's it. I haven't been sitting here for two days waiting for you. Where have you been? <laughs> I've soiled myself. <laughs> Could somebody change me? Gene, quickly. How come he's not wearing his space uniform anymore? 
He's not in space, Adam. So I, if I had a space uniform, I would wear it all the time. Now that he's back on Earth, he's wearing his sweater and his blanket over his legs. <laughs> he looks like the professor the very first time we met him. I'm old. <laughs> now that I'm not in space, I'm old. So on that note, rather than like, um, well, talking to the professor and trying to figure out why he didn't like space, Gene and Cyclops go for a walk. Well, presumably something like there's time between, yeah, the days that follow. So there's like a couple of days happen between this panel and the next panel. The days that follow are quiet, lazy, perfect for reflection and relaxation. But nowhere in there is like explanation and a grand story of the stars beyond. I don't know. Well, yeah, they do, that's true. They don't ask, but... I guess yeah. we could assume, but it, you can never assume in a comic book. My feeling is that if you don't see it in the comic book, it doesn't happen because that opens up the window of opportunity to, for somebody else to say like, oh, that never happened. Let me tell you what really happened and they can write the retcon story. Professor, where were you? I I gotta tell you, Cyclops. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Well, anyways, apparently uh, there was, uh, well, Scott's telling Jean that he's glad she stayed so apparently there was a option for her to leave. She's going to go back to college. <laughs> oh, yeah. Forgot about she college. She still hasn't finished university. <laughs> I still have two semesters to go, Scott. <laughs> I can't waste it all on you. Uh, but the professor apparently wants to run some tests on her. Because she caught a stray thought. Uh, you would think the professor would be able to keep those thoughts from being stray or maybe she was uh maybe maybe she is kind of examining everybody's minds and she doesn't admit it well i find it odd too that the professor's not like gene can we talk this there, there, something pretty crazy happened to you on that uh, shuttle crash uh, a couple of months ago or however long it was and i I'm worried about your power, and I'm worried about your ability to control it, and I would like to work with you and run some tests. I mean, why does the professor have to always be so mysterious? He's just a big, dirty liar, and he doesn't tell anybody anything. That's just his way. He's, yeah, it's, it's terrible. I'm the reason he returned to the school. He's worried about my ability to control Phoenix's power. Something wrong, Gene? Not so long as you're around. And as they're walking down the halls of the mansion, talking about some noise that they hear behind a door, Gene says, Scott, wait, don't you remember? That extra thick door leads to the danger room. Like, really? <laughs> yeah, she needed to remind him because clearly he was about to do something really stupid or something. Like back in issue four or five when he just randomly walked in there when he was yeah. introducing Gene's parents to Gene. Yeah, yeah, that's... That is some pretty weird dialogue. <laughs> Don't we remember? Don't you remember the door that secures our training that room? It's extra thick door. <laughs> it's right there. Oh, geez, the danger room. Yeah, I totally forgot. That's we, why we have this extra thick door. We still have a danger room? <laughs> so out of that danger room comes a very perturbed wolverine. I'm no kid anymore, Summers, and I ain't no flaming amateur. So where does Chrome Dome get off treating me like one? You tell Xavier what I told you, bub. Well, what I'm about to tell you anyway. <laughs> uh, here we go. I'm about to tell you. Listen up. 
Wolverine, don't jump through hoops for nobody. And that's when... I gotta go. <laughs> I, got, I need some brews. <laughs> and Scott kind of buries his hands in his head, and he's like, Ugh, I knew this was coming. And I like this next whole sequence. It's the professor back at the danger room controls just like, I don't have time for this. You, do this. You, do that. Go faster. Make your maneuvers. Use your strength. Scott, notify Wolverine that his childish outburst will cost him ten demerits. And I, I, I find that very amusing. I find this whole thing very amusing because, I mean, I think it's kind of, in a way, making parody of the old X-Men and the old Professor. But it's also showing, like, Cyclops is like, I, ten demerits, ten thousand demerits, it doesn't matter, Professor. Wolverine's a grown man. We're all grown people. We all know how to use our parent or powers. We're not your students anymore. Nobody gives a crap about your demerits, old man. Maybe if you would pay us more than a couple of bucks a week to be your X-Men, we'd give you more respect. Uh, professor's like, Why, how dare you talk to me like that? I failed with you as the leader. Well... He basically says that Cyclops has failed them as a as a leader. Forgive my bluntness, Scott, but to me that betokens a failure of leadership on your part. This anarchy is a result of your failure to teach these mutants how to be a team. Cyclops is like, Professor, I've taken detailed notes and they're in the files. You should read them. We are a team. Quiet, fool. <laughs> You're correct. I have been remiss in my duties. I have not taught the new X-Men in part because I trusted you to take that responsibility. That lapse will be speedily rectified. 20 demerits for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just at that time where, well, Cyclops is like, how am I supposed to reach him? I'm right, but Cerebro starts uh, making the Cerebro noises. Reed! The storm flies by. What are those guys talking about? <laughs> I'd like to know what they're talking about. Well, apparently there are two new mutants manifesting their abilities. One it's is in... One in Chicago and one in New York. They are both potentially quite powerful. Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> This is crazy. To him, I'm still the untried kid who's allowed only so much responsibility with the X-Men and no more. So the Professor is already, I mean, Cyclops is already resenting the Professor's return. And I guess the Professor's not reading Cyclops' mind. <laughs> the Professor doesn't give a crap what Cyclops thinks. He's <laughs> like, listen, you little flea. <laughs> He's like so out of touch with everything. Which is nice. It's a nice touch. I think it's it's pretty it's pretty cool. It's a very nice touch. I like it a lot. Uh, but so he makes the plan. He says, "You and Gene take the New York contact, and the professor will take the rest of the X Men to find out the Chicago contact." So it's like, all right, old X Men, you guys go over there. I'll take the new X Men and see what's going on here. See if I can't instill some teamwork amongst them. I want to see how they operate in the field. Yes. And we find out that the Hellfire Club has a two-way mirror to Cerebro. And this was nice. I didn't even catch this years ago that I, I read this. Uh, it was installed by Warhawk. Yeah, remember back in 110 when Warhawk was talking to a mysterious master? It was it was Jason Wingard or Shaw or one of these guys in the Hellfire Club. Somebody in the Hellfire Club. So then you're like, why wasn't this included in the classic X-Men? 
it was a filler issue, but it actually ties in nicely. Yeah, that's a good question. They could have had a like a, a Warhawk backstory. And then I wonder, like, we're not going to – we don't know, but I'm wondering, like, what does the actual caption – for those of you who wondered who sicked Warhawk on our Merry Mutants back in X-Men uh, and why, well, now you know. That's a little editor's comment from Roger Stern. So I almost wonder, like, what what does the classic X-Men thing say? Oh, yeah. Like, it probably just doesn't even have that caption. Like, uh, Warhawk? Who's Warhawk? No Warhawk <laughs> here. <laughs> That's right. You're right. They didn't even do that story, did they? No. Not at yeah, all. Yeah, they probably just cut it out. Um, but this is where Jason Wingard refers to one of these people who are sitting next to a heart, a club, a diamond, and a spade as Shaw and ask, what's the next move? Well, the next move is apparently we're going to go, uh, the Hellfire Club is going to go target these two mutants and attempt to recruit them before the X-Men do. Mm-hmm. And if they manage to uh, meet up with the X-Men, they will attempt to eliminate them. Jason Wingard's like, I think you're underestimating the true power of this fully operational battle star. I mean, a uh, <laughs> team of X-Men. I got a question for you, Jeremy. What? Do we ever learn how, is like, is there ever a fill-in backstory of how, who, well, uh, I won't spoil it, but how uh, Jason Wingard became uh, affiliated with the uh, Hellfire Club? I don't know. Okay, so you don't know. I, I don't. I, I don't. I mean, I would hope that in no. in one of these issues, there will be a, I was lost in my ways, and then I found these guys, and they were awesome. But I, I don't know. I literally do not know. So this is when we, in canon, get our first glimpse, I think, of uh, Emma Frost, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Shaw's plan is that, yes, that they're going to go get these mutants before the X-Men and bag the X-Men if they can. And Jason Wingard's like, the X-Men are tough. And Shaw's like, so are we. And here's the White Queen. Hi, she says. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> I'm in my underwear. Which is interesting. Like, as a kid, you know, seeing these women, these scantily clad women in the Hellfire Club, you know, like as a, as a young man, as a young boy reading these comics... I don't think twice about it because I'm reading a superhero comic and half everybody's in their underwear. And so it just seems like a, another costume. Mm -hmm. And now as an adult, it just seems absurd. <laughs> it does sound very absurd. But I think uh, the point of the Hellfire Club is they are very wealthy and they are all about like debauchery and I don't know. It'd be a club where you would have women running around in underwear. I really want to know the thought process of between uh, Chris Claremont and John Byrne when they decided to do this. They were drunk, high on cocaine, <laughs> like, you know what would be cool? A hellfire club. Yeah, with naked ladies. No, put some underwear on them. Okay. <laughs> Probably. I'm sure the thought process was not much more detailed than that. You know what boys like? Boys like scantily clad women. Don't you think so, John? I, hey, I know how to draw scantily clad women, Chris. <laughs> That'll make my drawing table much more exciting. You know what this comic is missing, Chris? Scantily clad women. Teddies. Lots and lots of teddies. <laughs> and bustiers. So they flash over to the Windy City... Chicago, home of the world's tallest building and, so they say, best pizza. 
<laughs> there was a uh, in the Daily Show. There was a recent kind of a series of sketches on Chicago's deep dish pizza. I saw it. It was very funny. It, it was. <laughs> you can't fold this Chicago pizza in half. <laughs> Eat it with a fork. John Stewart is a proponent of the New York style pizza. I like them both. I don't, having lived in Chicago for uh, almost two years, I don't recall ever eating a Chicago style pizza. Oh, well, you don't have to live in Chicago to have Chicago style pizza. I remember eating a Chicago style hot dog and those are delicious. Sure, sure. Is there, what's the difference between a Chicago styled hot dog and a New York styled hot dog? Just the toppings. Okay. What toppings go on a New York-styled hot dog? Uh, probably just ketchup, mustard, onions, pickles, huh. relish. Okay. I don't know. Well, we get uh, – uh, well, we see Chicago, but we're really going to go to Deerfield, Illinois, which is about 25 miles northwest of the Loop, and we get our first introduction to Catherine Pride. She is 13 years old, going on 14. She's headed home from dance class. Yes, and she has been having a lot of headaches lately. She gets home and her parents are talking to a Miss Frost, who looks eerily familiar to the white cre- white queen in the previous panel, except that she has glasses on. Yeah, it's probably not the white queen, though. No, it can't be. Uh, so yes, she's been having these headaches. Uh, the, her parents, I guess, are trying to enroll her into a different school. Uh, she's also talking about her parents are serious about splitting up. So all the problems of a late seventies teenager, just, just all kind of presented here. She's got a teddy bear with a big bow tie. She's got a fantastic four comic on the floor. She does. There's a clown. She's into dance because she's got a Barishnikov poster. There's like a she teen scene magazine. Leaf Garrett. Is that like an Iron Man poster behind the Leaf Carrot poster? Oh, it kind of looks like Iron Man. That or the Vision. Kind of. It's got to be Iron Man though. Or Superman. Oh, <laughs> maybe. Crossover. So she lays down on the bed. She's kind of complaining about that creepy Frost girl. She gives her the creeps. And as she's laying on her bed, uh, we see that she's got a kiss poster, which is covering up a Kermit poster, which is kind of funny. And uh, her head is hurting. She's like, I'm only 13 and a half. I can't be dying. Somebody stop the hurting. Somebody please make it stop. And then the pain stops. Stop. Just like that. Slowly, gingerly, Kitty opens her eyes. She's I'm in the living room. How'd I get here? Last thing I remember, I was lying on my bed. And that's when her mom, her dad, and Miss Frost come walking in the patio door, and they're like, I thought you were upstairs. What are you doing laying on the floor of the living room? Mm-hmm. Kitty's all... She must have some sort of teleportation power. Yeah, something like that. Kitty's all... Or Catherine, I should say. She's all, like, flustered. and like, ah, I wanted some water, and then I tripped. Uh, I gotta go. Well, other than the fact that the panel referred to her as as uh, Catherine, the first appearance, she's been referred to Kitty ever since. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think her father calls her Kitty Cat or something like that. Mom calls her Kitty. The captions call her Kitty. Uh, her father calls her Kitten. Kitten. There it is. So she runs upstairs, and they apologize to Miss Frost for her their daughter's, I don't know, poor behavior. 
I understand perfectly. Kitty's at that awkward age. You have my school's brochures. I'll be in touch. And as she's walking out, a black woman, a giant Russian, a small Canadian, and a man in a wheelchair come walking past. Who are these people? I don't know. Have we met these people before? It's weird that Xavier does not take the opportunity to read her mind, but maybe he just is too arrogant to bother. I Yeah, because she's thinking to herself, the father likes me. The mother does not. I'll have to make sure his view prevails. Well, look who's here, Xavier and three X-Men, right on schedule. Wolverine, as she walks by, thinks, Nice-looking frail. Something about her scent, though. Raises the heckles on my neck. Wonder why. So if the professor's got a psychic rapport with all of the X-Men, shouldn't he catch that at least and be like, Oh, who is she? Oh, my God. Hellfire Club. <laughs> they have a two-way communicator with Cerebro. My God. <laughs> no, they're totally oblivious. Well, apparently, Kitty Pride's parents are waiting for the X-Men. Uh, he's like, oh, you're from the School for Gifted Youngsters. Come on in. His name is Carmen Pride, by the way. I know, I saw. That's weird. And his wife is Terry Pride. Yeah. They didn't for once just think about changing that, make the man Terry and the woman Carmen. <laughs> weird. It was It was the 80s or the early, the late 70s. It was the late 70s. Uh, and so Kitty's looking around the corner and she's like, well, these people are weird too. But she does say that the big guy, uh, hold, pushing the wheelchair, he's kind of neat looking. Yeah. He's so huge, but kind of neat looking. The mom, it's only been like three minutes according to like the way I'm watching this story progress. And the mom is like, Kitty, uh, or who is this? Kitty, your mom. But this person who looks like Kitty's mom says, Kitty, your mom and I have business to discuss with Professor Xavier. Oh, you're right. So it's actually... <laughs> is that, that's well, not, it, is, it is the dad because he's got a purple sweater on. Oh, and mom's got a okay. yellow shirt on. So, yeah, it's, it's the dad. In the previous, so, yeah, the previous panel, he's got like a receding hairline and everything. But here you see the back of his head. So it's like kind of looks like a woman with long hair. But her hair is a different color. I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. It, it looks it looks pretty. It's weird. It's, it's not a great drawing. Let's put it that way. And he says, "You interested in a trip to the malt shop with these strangers here? My treat." And so a real quick change, an eight block walk. Wow, eight blocks. They uh, they head over to the soda pop shop, the ice cream shop, and Aurora is talking to Kitty. Well, uh, Wolverine reads a hustler, and <laughs> Colossus has the. Uh, funny looking look on his face as he ogles over the over uh, Wolverine's shoulder looking down at presumably naked women <laughs> and not just naked women they're they're hustler women that that means they're yeah. doing things yeah <laughs> <laughs> and kitty's like we got black kids in our school too aurora but none of them look like you i mean you know white hair and blue eyes so far as i know kitty i am one of a kind and so are you and you're kind of racist. <laughs> you mean because I'm so smart? No, have you ever heard of the X-Men? <gasps> They're like superheroes, she says with a giant scoop of strawberry ice cream and a very excited look on her face. Where is, there's a weird drawing of this scoop of ice cream because you can't see the hand and it looks like it's just floating there. <laughs> it does kind of. I don't know. I'm just bamboozled by these two drawings of Kitty and Storm. They look like uh, anime girls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. 
They got gigantic eyes. Storm is like, yep, we're X-Men. And uh, Kitty's like, gosh, can I have your autograph? She's so excited. I think John Byrne invented anime. <laughs> he may very well have. With these two panels. And uh, before this. Storm is like, oh, she's so excited. I wish I was like her when I was her age. Instead, I was dying in the desert. Oh, wait, no, that was when I was three. <laughs> That's right. This is totally different. Because Storm is what, like, isn't Storm like 19? Something like that. I mean, really, she's not that much older than Kitty. <laughs> well, anyways. The uh, owner of the shop or the, the, the guy who's working the, the bar at the ice cream shop taps Wolverine on the shoulder who has switched over from a hustler to a penthouse and says, uh, this ain't no library. Library, fella. You want to read the magazine? Buy the magazine. I don't like being tapped, bub, or ordered around. Wolverine, no. I don't, <laughs> I don't like people, re- oh, I don't like people reading without paying. Want to make something of it? You betcha, Futzer. <laughs> And that's when, from outside, three robot guys jump through the window. The so-called Knights of Hellfire, perhaps. Scarash. From the color. Yes, and they start firing with flamethrowers, but it's okay because Colossus is able to turn into his metal form quick enough to not have anybody be hurt. By the White Wolf, a flamethrower. I barely managed to change into my armor form and shield the store owner from the blast in time, even so the heat is incredible. I can actually feel it. Wow. But I can't write. <laughs> can I draw? Wolverine rips off his jacket to reveal his Wolverine costume, and he says, he, I don't know who you are, and frankly, I couldn't care less, but right now, you've got to answer to the Wolverine's prayers. You're the answer to Wolverine's prayers. Hmm. Wolverine must have been praying for a brand new costume, and he's going to steal one of these guys' costume. <laughs> he doesn't have his cowl on. He's just got his uh, his costume. So oh, yeah. kind of neat. That's... I've been spoiling for a decent rough house. I'm obliged to you clowns for, hey, my claws, I didn't even touch the creep. He's protected by some sort of force field. This is where it gets a little weird. So Kitty Pride is backed up uh, against the side of her booth, and behind her is a big window. But in the next panel, she gets a kick that sends her out faster than she would have anticipated. And now she's in a back alley, and she's been kicked through a solid brick wall. Huh. It's weird. Yeah. That seems like it's just a mistake yeah unless he was like she was like swipe kicked off to the side and that would really hurt i think well she she kicked herself like uh she she kicks herself backwards to get out of the way yeah but she's already backed up against the booth maybe it's like uh it's just glass with brick on the other side oh okay that could be a design choice yeah okay very strange design choice so she has uh gone through the wall, for lack of a better word. She's outside. She She's realizing now that she pushed herself right through the wall, but that's impossible. She's dizzy, and she can't stay awake, and then she passes out. Meanwhile, inside, a, a storm is using the weather against another, one of these uh, robot-type villains. Mm-hmm. All her elemental powers. But for every attack, he seems to have a defense, at which point Wolverine must be reading her thoughts because he says, Storm, listen up. Each of these gonzos 
seems equipped to counter our specific attacks. Let's see what happens if we switch partners. And he manages to uh, scrag her opponent. The, profe- the professor's sitting back like, I, I planted that idea. That, that was my idea. <laughs> You're still not a team yet. Yeah, where is the professor? No, the professor's hanging out with Carmen and Terry. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Storm thinks to herself that Wolverine's idea worked, and uh, after they all switch partners, they handily take care <coughs> Excuse me, of the Knights of Hellfire. You would think with their technology to create these knights that they would make them all, like, be able to def- defend against all of the X-Men's powers, but they must have just not had the budget for that. Yeah, they don't, and it doesn't really matter, because in comes um, the White Queen, who looks strangely like Miss Frost. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and she uh, she hits them all with a telepathic force bolt. Assaulting our minds, so powerful. They fight the mental ambush using psychic techniques taught them by Professor X and Phoenix, but the outcome is never in doubt. With a smile, Emma Frost, the White Queen, watches them fall. Wait a minute, they're the same person? Crazy. Yeah. So she says they're unconscious, load them aboard the hovercraft, and uh, the random Hellfire guy does. And what I'm wondering is, okay, so these guys just committed a crime in downtown Chicago, why do they have their Hellfire Club logo endorsed on their little uh, hovercraft ship? <laughs> Maybe it's cloaked. Because <laughs> you, I mean, we don't. Well, we don't know this yet. But the Hellfire Club is a well-established, legal, legally acting club. Uh, so their logo is probably very well known throughout business and political associations. So why would they use that logo on their kidnapping mobile? <laughs> Maybe they have two different logos. Ah, this is when they're bad, and then the other one's for when they're conducting business. Right. Got it. Okay. So they load up these three X-Men, and uh, one of the random thugs is like, what about the guys that that we left behind in the armored forms? Oh, don't worry about them, Cutler. The Hellfire Club has ways of dealing with failures. And the ice cream shop explodes. Yeah, wow. They they killed them off. Those men had power and training sufficient to defeat the X-Men without my help. They botched their job, and now they have explosive charges, and their armors have uh, rewarded them for their handiwork. Don't act so shocked, Cutler. We pay good wages. We expect our money's worth. She says as they zoom across the public roadways in their hovercraft, and nobody is around. <laughs> now, Adam, you've lived in Chicago. What road looks like this? Well, first of all, they point out that they're on Lakeshore Drive. <laughs> <laughs> There's like, there are no other cars on Lakeshore Drive during there, broad day. There are day. never no cars <laughs> on Lakeshore Drive. So, yeah. <laughs> and then look at the pilot of this hovercraft. I mean, that vehicle is huge in comparison yeah. to the driver. So. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Anyways. So inside, and I mean, even inside, this thing is bigger than my house. I mean, you've got like four guys and plenty of floor space. Uh, Emma's there. There's a driver in there. So there's six people plus the extra nine people just, and there's plenty of room, plenty of elbow room. Yeah, it is. It's very large. I agree. Emma Frost is like, strip them, search them, take all their stuff. We know that Storm has lockpicks in her headpiece. So search her for other places. And 
take uh, get rid of Wolverine's claws. Those might be used as a weapon. Yes, take those out. And one of the uh, Cutler, maybe he's like, uh, you think this is Jay Cutler of the Chicago Bears? Probably. <laughs> he was a Hellfire guy, former to being a, or prior to being a quarterback. Uh, they're wondering where Emma, or I mean, where Kitty Pride is, and Emma's like, meh. I'm not even gonna use my psychic powers to scan the area. She's around. <laughs> Well, she, she escaped in the confusion. How does she know that but not know where she is? Like, did she see her escape? I don't know. I mean, she did blow up the place, so... <laughs> she might be dead. Yeah. Well, turns out that uh, Kitty Pride, uh, I guess, hitched a ride. Yeah, she, uh, she, she uh, walks through the wall that's behind them. I did it. I concentrated, and I'm walking right through the wall from the rear compartment. I feel tingly all over, but not as tired as the last time, and my headaches are all gone. Oh, no, that creepy Miss Frost and her goon squad are holding the X-Men prisoners. Why? Why did I decide to snoop around in here? I, I gotta help them, but how? These guys have guns and superpowers, and I'm all alone. And next issue is the de- debut of the Dazzler. <gasps> Wow. That's all very exciting. They stripped Wolverine down fast. He's like totally naked and they're still working on the other guys. Yep. Colossus is almost naked. Uh, Storm, not quite. And Wolverine, he's either completely naked or he's in his underwear. Mm. So there you go. Episode or issue uh, 129, the first appearance of Kitty Pride. And the Hellfire Club. And yeah, and the Hellfire Club proper. There you go. Any letters this week, Adam? Uh yeah. We got uh one letter uh last last episode, last week I put out the call for uh kind of the female viewpoint on that uh weird Anocenti written story about Emma Frost. Oh yes. We got a letter from Laura Deal. Um who uh, gives us exactly that. She says, Hey, Adam and Jeremy love the podcast. I've been listening to it since 2011. When I got back into comics, I'm so impressed that you guys have kept it up for nearly three years. Now you make it fun to follow along with the early issues. And I always look forward to new episodes. It has been almost three years. Crazy. It's crazy. Uh, You were looking for a female perspective. So I thought I'd write in. This issue was one of my first introductions to Emma Frost, and I've puzzled over it several times. Personally, I find her really fascinating in part because of the point that's being made here that, unlike most comic book characters, she knowingly uses her sexuality to her advantage. Comics are obviously full of a lot of fan service and suggestively drawn female characters. But unlike nearly everyone else, Emma consciously chooses to dress provocatively and present herself that way. She's not a doll being dressed up by an off-screen artist. She designed herself to be sexy for her own ends. I think this issue is trying to say that Emma's beliefs believes that you can you can't be a victim if you don't let them make you one. But ultimately, she is fooling herself. Even though theoretically Emma and the maid share similar problems and could be allies, Emma dismisses her out of hand because she has no room for weakness. From a feminist perspective, Emma is a wonderfully complicated character but she is also still playing into a sexist system rather than fighting against it. Hmm. Why not take off the corset and put on some pants? Once she's the white queen and theoretically making the rules now, that that outfit must be both uncomfortable and chilly, but she can't do that because her power is based on her sexuality. 
she'd lose her power without her looks. I like that the maid makes the point that while Emma thinks she has it all figured out and is above everything, her power uh, games leave her equally vulnerable. She hasn't actually escaped the system. She's just raised the stakes. Possibly I'm giving this story more credit than it deserves, but even if it's not entirely successful, I like that Anne Nascenti added some depth to Emma by exploring her POV here and showing that she has her own agenda slash agency. Sorry, this got a bit long. I have a lot of thoughts on Emma Frost. Keep up with the good work. <laughs> I should definitely put a lot more thought into the whole Emma Frost and specifically this issue than than I have. Um, Emma Fro- I am I am actually uh, thrilled that we have uh, uh, f- female fans uh, and also really thoughtful fans. Mm-hmm. I just uh, that is uh, that's really cool. Yeah, this letter is well written, grammar, punctuation, everything's just like spot on, and lots of lots of uh, deep thoughts. Yep. Uh, so Emma Frost to me is kind of an interesting character because. I read her in this run up until she kind of disappeared for a while. And then I didn't catch back up with her until uh, the Astonishing X-Men run when she was a good guy and on the X-Men. See, I I have always liked Emma Frost. Um, I first learned of Emma Frost when she was the headmaster of Generation X. Oh, okay. And that was pre- Grant Morrison's run. So she was already kind of a good guy. And then she uh, joined the X-Men proper in the, in the Grant Morrison run. And we all know what happened there. And that, I don't know, they just, they've made her character so much more interesting. Yes. At this point in her, uh, in the story, she's pretty Magneto-esque, two-dimensional. But yeah, well, at, so far, hmm. I mean, it's only been one issue. Oh, I'm not, oh, really oh, counting, oh. I'm not really counting the classic stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm just counting the uncanny one 129 and she's going to be probably pretty two-dimensional for for a few issues before we actually get some depth into who she is i don't know she's she's one of my favorites i think she's i gotta be honest i I think she's probably going to be two-dimensional for a very long time yeah i think so too yeah okay so wondering how, how much of this uh idea of of like her playing up her sexuality is actually going to come out or if that is just a classic X-Men thing that came much, much later. I think it's a classic X-Men thing that came much, much later, in my opinion. Maybe maybe it was the plan all along, but I kind of doubt it. I'll be curious. Re- in rereading these, I'll pay extra attention. Because she's the white queen, right? There's also a black queen, which we haven't really learned much about, and she's also wearing underwear and has almost no depth. <laughs> right. But anyways. Although, like, there's all sorts of weird stuff with Chris Claremont and Sage and all this weird crap. It gets retconned and all this stuff. Nice. If you would like to join in on the fun, you may do so by visiting us at www.facebook.com forward slash Danger Room Podcast. Following us, following us at Danger Room Go. You can email us at dangerroom at redcapproductions.com or you can visit us at www.xmenpodcast.com where all of the episodes are and you can post a comment, download all the episodes, whatever you want to do. And you can also, what am I missing? You can catch us on Stitcher. You can go out to iTunes, type in Danger Room under the podcast sections. You can find us there. Download us, subscribe to us, leave a comment. We like all of that stuff. It's pretty cool. Also, uh, Laura Deal 
That's a great name. I don't. It's like a journalist name or something. Laura Deal on the spot. Well, do you think she's related uh, related to Kim Deal of the formerly of the Pixies? Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be? If you are Laura, just let us know. If not, yeah, this letter was good. <laughs> yes, uh, thanks for reading it. You know, I was actually a little disappointed in this latest Pixies album because I learned that Kim Deal's not actually in the Pixies anymore. I'm like, well, how can it be a Pixies album if it doesn't have all three Pixies? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I don't know. They're they're on tour now. I think they have a replacement female bassist, and I don't know. Hmm. I I have no interest in seeing the new Pixies. No, same here. All right. Well, let's turn our attention to classic X Men number thirty five. Uh, this proclaims that the Dark Phoenix saga has begun. Really? So, yeah. This early, huh? So, I guess issue number 129 is the beginning of the Phoenix saga. That's interesting. Yeah. This uh, this is the July 1989 issue, which was on sale March 28th of 1989. So, nine years from what we... Nine, nine years later is Classic X-Men. Okay. And the story that we're going to take a look at uh, take a look at is Paper Not Paper by Daryl Edelman, uh, drawn by John Bolton, lettered by Joe Rosen, uh, colored by Glennis Oliver. Remember, remember Glennis Oliver versus Glennis. Weaver? All right, uh, if you say so, <laughs> I would have never guessed. I would have never realized that this was the same person. Oh, if you hadn't pointed it out. There's not that many people named Glennis that are colorists, but but maybe they're two different people, and I've got it wrong. I have no idea. We're, we're Wikipedia step away from knowing. <laughs> that seems like way too much work. <laughs> Steve Lytle. Steve Lytle color, uh, cover, rather, uh, featuring Kitty Pride on in front of a two-piece cover that's divided in half with the X-Men on one side and the uh, Hellfire Club on the other side. Yeah, it's not very exciting. And the inside front cover features... Is that Colossus standing behind Kitty Pride? It must be. I think it is. Either that or like Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually at first glance, without reading the story, I was like, oh, is that Dazzler? <laughs> <laughs> but it's not because Dazzler's not featured in this issue. But yeah, it's it's Kitty Pride, A very grown-up looking Kitty Pride. She just doesn't look 13 or 14 to me here. That's true. I don't think she's wearing a top. Uh, She doesn't appear to be but i'm sure she is she's only 13 <laughs> well, i know uh, like john bolton you, you kitty oh, this is this is steve lytle oh steve lytle you little uh perv <laughs> not that john bolton hasn't had his fair share of uh, <laughs> this type of work um so we open up paper not paper and immediately i'm thinking wow this is this is going to take place right after kitty falls out of the restaurant, uh, phases through the wall. That's interesting. That's an interesting place to start a story. Doesn't it? And then and then it gets all trippy and weird, and I lose interest. Oh, my God. <laughs> this story is the worst. Ah, it's not the worst. It's like the second worst. Whatever story we read last week was the worst. <laughs> I don't know. I think this one's worse than last week's. What was the one last week? Last week was the Emma Frost one, and it was pretty bad. Okay. This but one's this worse. one takes the cake. So it's, it it just like she's uh, Kitty having trouble staying awake after falling through the wall starts to have psychedelic dreams. 
Yeah, and I don't even really. I mean, she's it's 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 an obvious reference to her book smartness because she's fading into the library and she's trying to read books and there's this wheelchair like cricket person that comes up to her which at first i'm like okay well maybe this is supposed to represent the professor and for a little while it seems like he does but it's a woman it it is a woman who's got very like like her boobs are like like big softballs (laughs) the way they're drawn i don't know well i think it is supposed to sort of represent the professor without actually being the professor i'm not sure because you can't have somebody in the wheel in a wheelchair in an x-men comic book without thinking about the professor it's just impossible i totally get it but so as we carry on this woman shows up and she's obvious she, she calls herself mistress frost and she's got all these dancing women behind her and uh and that's when the wheelchair man is like Oh, books are stupid. I want to come with you. You guys look like you're having a lot of fun. I don't know. I missed that. That's on the next page. Oh, gracious, fun. But then Mistress Frost knocks the wheelchair man over. There's some kooky dancing going on in front of Kitty Pride. Get Mondo, baby. Gonzo. (laughs) (laughs) And Kitty goes to try to help the wheelchair man. Like, why did you knock her over? Again, it's a woman. Yeah, and Mistress Frost is like, books are stupid. What's this book? It's the structure and function of the X-Factor by Professor Charles Xavier. This isn't a book. It's mush. (laughs) I like how Miss Frost is icy. Yeah. Yeah. She's got like little icicles dripping off of her. And all the books turn into mushy pulp. And Mistress Frost is like, look, they're not even paper anymore. Just Broken bindings, broken spines and backs. Going back to the theme of the story, which is paper. Yeah. And so Kitty is passed out on the ground. I guess there's a bunch of books around her. I'm not sure if that's real life or if that's more projection, but... Yeah, it's strange that it's it's got to be more projection because there's also bricks in there, or there's just other... Oh, those no, are just they're... miscolored books. No, they look like bricks to me, but maybe you're right. Maybe they're books. Well, it does say broken spines and bricks, so I guess that they are bricks. Yeah. But Me... how, if she went through the wall, how are there bricks on the ground? So it's got to be part of the this psychedelic thing that's She's going on. Proje- maybe projecting, like, the only way I could have gone through that wall is if I would have burst down those bricks. And I don't know. She keeps thinking about the mushy books and the everything's turning into pink frosting. The wheelchair person is crawling toward her. She's starting to turn into mush. And the wheelchair man's like, don't worry. You can't judge a book by its cover. And that's when Storm appears. And this is this is Storm. This isn't like a caricature or anything like that. Uh, but she is reading a giant book. <laughs> and the other books have disappeared, so. And so Kitty and Storm go dancing. Oh, wait, Kitty's outside now and she's wearing her outfit from inside the dream. Right. So she's still not awake. And the other one with the books outside, she was wearing her regular outfit. It's just confusing. It's very confusing. Um, Nothing after the first panel is real until we get to the last panel, I think. Right. Which is why I didn't like this story. (laughs) Uh, There's there's more. Mistress Frost is getting mad, and now she's converted all of her dancing kooky people into wheelchair attack buggies. Dunces of doom. They're like, they have strange breasts. <laughs> yeah, they look like little... What's what do like they look uh, like? Toddler teeth. <laughs> kind of. 
You're right. It gums with like some teeth. I guess that's nobody's going to be able to imagine what we're talking about with that description. <laughs> they kind of look like Mickey Mouse's pants. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, so I don't know. If you can try to put those together, that's what it looks like. Uh, the wheelchair dunces or whatever, they smack into Storm and knock her out. Kitty's all sad about that. Kitty puts together, or puts Storm on one of the wheelchairs and like starts driving towards Mistress Frost. And Mistress Frost is freaked out and then Storm and Kitty on the wheelchair blast through Mistress Frost. And now they're in the library. Physics, home, books. I'm passing. Yeah, she she somehow goes through the walls of a physics lab and then through her home and then the library. I'm passing through walls, walls of bricks and books. Paper, not paper, unbound. She goes into the binding of a giant book. This is my power, my mutant power to pass through solid objects. Now I know, passing through obstacles passing through the new and we are at that wall and there are actually broken bricks laying all around her hmm. again how no <laughs> with the x-men in the service of another ready or not here i come and she phases into the hovercraft yeah at least the hovercraft is consistently ginormous so yeah i don't get it but whatever. I don't think there was anything to get there. I think that was just a really bad story. Uh, somebody, like, the, I, I feel like 15 days prior to press, somebody's like, oh, crap. <laughs> Who's got that classic <laughs> X-Men story? Uh, what issue are they on? The kitty issue? Okay. Hmm. What about Edelman? Edelman hasn't done anything lately. Hey, Edelman, you got an X-Men story in you? It's got to take place here. <laughs> sure, no problem, boys. But I feel like this has been done before a couple of times now, the, the like the between the panels, like, well, like with the Havoc and Lorna Dane thing. It wasn't quite between the panels, but kind of was. I feel like there's yeah, been some other stories it seems as well. like that is one of the themes of classic X-Men is they want to do this kind of things that happen between the panels. But the problem is too often they don't have a story to tell and then they end up with this kind of just weirdness. Yeah, I don't. Weirdness can be good, like the Wolverine and Cyber stories by Sam Keith. Well, yeah, those were really weird, but they were great. I don't know, man. I I think uh, either like weird stories drawn by John Bolton were hot in the '80s, or like I don't know. They're like, I don't know what else are we gonna do. Let's do a trippy story. Don't know. Yeah. Well, anyways, that that takes us to the end of that. Classic X-Men story. So, Adam, uh, have you done any additional reading? I have. I did a, I did a few issues, of, of most of, the of which are of very little consequence. Uh, Black Panther 14 and 15 features the Black Panther and the Avengers, uh, including Beast, uh, battling against Claw, one of Black Panther's... Uh, enemies from his early appearances in the, pla- the 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 Fantastic Four. Is that K L A W? It is. That lies the master of sound. K L A W will become one of Dazzler's uh, nemesises. Nemesis. I, I wonder if it's the same one. Does he got like Probably. a Does he got like a red outfit and like a like a weird hand? Like a big uh, sound horn for a hand. Yes. 
That would make sense because Dazzler is very sound motivated. So yeah, I bet it's the same person. Yes. The there's also a gang of street thugs called the Thunderbolts, which I thought was funny. Hmm. Um, then Marvel Two in One number fifty one features Frank Miller art, and is a story about how Thing, Beast, Miss Marvel, Jarvis, Wonder Man, Nick Fury, and somebody named D A Tower uh, are all playing a secret poker game together and at the same time shield is being invaded by uh some sort of uh yellow claw team and uh dum dum has dum dum dugan is is in control of shield while nick fury is off playing uh poker and he refers to I finally got off of Godzilla duty, and now I'm uh, now I have to, now I'm getting invaded. What's going on? So I thought that was funny that he literally mentions Godzilla. That's hilarious. It's officially in canon. <laughs> nice. That's that's um, the second reference to that issue. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> it's super official. Awesome. Godzilla is in the Marvel universe. Um, Beast refers to the X-Men joining the circus, so it took place somewhere around there. Okay. And, of course, they stop Yellowclaw from taking over S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, Marvel Super Heroes number 10 is interesting. It's actually an issue from 1992, but uh, the reason I'm doing it is because when Miss Marvel got canceled at issue 23, Chris Claremont wrote... I'm not sure how much of this is actually written, but he wrote issues 24 and apparently part of 25. And so in 1992, they decided to take issue 24 and 25 and finish it. Um, I've read both of them, and clearly 25 is fleshed out. But 24 is interesting. This would be the second official appearance of Sabretooth, if it had actually happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, Miss Marvel... Uh, has joined the Avengers at this point, um, and Canadian the, at the same time that she's working out in the Danger Room, the Canadian government uh, has handed their agent, or I guess somebody they've captured, Sabretooth, over to Shield, uh, and they want Shield to train Sabretooth so that he'll be able to recapture Weapon X. In, in case they decide that they want to go after Weapon X again. They want to have Sabretooth handy for that. So, which makes me wonder how much of this is was the actual script and how much of it changed to be updated to modern times with what we know. I, I could see it being either way because I almost feel like they kind of changed this. Mm-hmm. So like this kind of never really could happen. Yeah. But Anyway, uh, Sabretooth escapes into the subway and fights Miss Marvel, and she wins. Hmm. And the next issue features uh, Miss Marvel versus the uh, the New Brotherhood, featuring Mystique and et al. All of them? Supposedly, although, again, this, this issue was supposedly never finished. Oh. So, so like, who is et al.? Like, who, who else? Um, I know, I kind of, I, I scanned it to figure out when to do it. And it's definitely got a mystique rogue. Um, and I think destiny. Is that it? I, it might have blob, but I'm not sure. Huh? But, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be, I'll be hitting that issue up at some point. Probably okay. around when we get to, uh, Avengers annual number 10. 
Okay. That would make sense. But I think that happens. I don't think that that happens until like after X-Men 143, 44. Yeah. So it might be a while, but it seems like that story takes place right before Avengers annual number 10. Okay. Cool. I'm looking forward to that. It could be filling in some gaps. Sweet. Anything else? I also did Avengers 183 and 184, uh, which features Cap trying to convince Falcom to become the token Black Avenger, and they actually refer to him as the token Black Avenger. <laughs> I did not just make that up. That's awful. <laughs> because they feel the Henry Guyrich feels like the Avengers need some sort of diversity, and um, I don't know if you remember X Men. Annual number three, the um, the newspaper on the ground featured a uh, something about uh, the Absorbing Man battling the Avengers on the pier. I don't recall, but well, this, these are the two issues that feature the Absorbing Man battling the Avengers on the pier. Oh, and uh, Miss Marvel gets knocked into the water, and Beast goes after him, but apparently Beast can't swim, and Miss Marvel has to save him. Got it. Which is, I didn't know Beast couldn't swim. When Falcon, having decided to join the Avengers, talks to Henry Gyrich, this is literally his dialogue. Sorry, Massa, but when Cap gets a B in his bonnet, there just ain't no stopping that child. No, sir. <laughs> That's bad. Jeez, Cap, this being a token is starting to wear pretty thin pretty fast. <laughs> it's just bad. <laughs> That's terrible. Um, the Avengers defeat uh, Crusher Creel, the Absorbing Man, and he turns himself into water to escape and um, may or may not be dead. Probably not. Nobody dies. What am I talking about? <laughs> All right. And that's where I left off. Uh, next next set of episodes is where we pick off with the uh, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch story. Oh, sweet. So that's that. All right, then. Sounds awesome. In between there, uh, somewhere, Power Man and Iron Has 57 that we did takes place, and also X-Men 122 to 124, mm. which I believe are the arcade issues. Cool. I could be wrong about that. One of them's definitely the ghetto issue. <laughs> Yo, mama. In the ghetto. <laughs> Storm visits the ghetto. Yeah. All right, well, then, uh, anything else you need to add to this one? No, sir. No, sir. (laughs) Well, then, uh, until next time, everybody, the danger room is closed. Closed.